0: Supratim Adhikari is currently the technology editor for the Australian newspaper. Before he was setting the agenda on technology and business discourse nationwide, he had lived in India and Trinidad. When he came to Australia, he found himself as a chef at Attica Restaurant, considered to be Australia's best. Far from being satisfied landing in an amazing, groundbreaking kitchen, Supratim, the Renaissance man, landed a job at the Australian newspaper in business and now as their technology editor. What an inspirational journey. Supratim has witnessed disruption with massive changes in the newsroom. And we talk about how did we go from great journalism to a hyper-commoditized product? How did we go from story writing and reporting that centers on the facts to a hyper-commoditized model of clickbait and entertainment? Moreover, we examine the interaction and intersection of technology and business and in particular, in Australia, we discuss digital transformation and productivity gains from technology. Enjoy our discussion. Supratim Adhikari, technology editor for the Australian newspaper and former editor of Technology Spectator. Welcome to Discipline. Great to be here. Now your online profile is pretty Spartan, but I know that you once worked as a chef in Attica restaurant, which is consistently rated on a global scale Australia's. Best restaurant. Uh, how did you find yourself writing as a journalist after being a chef? It seems like a pretty big career change.
1: Oh, it is. It is. Uh, it is. Well, it is in one way, and, and and perhaps not so much in in other ways. But look, I came to Australia in 1999 with aspirations to work in media, uh, and clearly, you know, I kind of got there eventually. But yes, the path to it was certainly more convoluted than I would have imagined. Uh, look, I. I I got into cooking or in the hospitality sector, like many people do in their, you know, in their early twenties, uh, as a way to make some money to pay the bills. But I guess I was very fortunate to to work with and meet some really, really talented uh, and inspirational people who didn't see cooking as purely as a as a way to make money, but rather saw it in its in, in its full extent as as a very creative process. So I worked uh, you know, so I met Ben working in one of the kitchens in Melbourne, and then eventually uh, um, when uh, Ben Shuri decided to move to Attica and take on the the helm there and uh, and sort of build it to what his dreams were and and uh, I was very fortunate to go along for that ride for a little bit, which was very good. yeah.. Uh- and then clearly it was, it was working. The, the business was, you know, the restaurant was slowly starting to win a claim, which was great. Um, and I was sort of quite geared to sort of pursue that and, and take that to its fullest extent before, you know, as it happens, you know, you sometimes take a little break and you reassess your life and you think, you know, do you want to really do this or not? And as it turns out, I, there was an opportunity in in online media at that time, and this would be around 2006, 2007. Um, online media at that time really wasn't a thing yeah. as such.
0: Just beginning.
1: It was just beginning. Yeah. And, and, and it was an opportunity to, to, you know, and it was all quite vague at the beginning, but, you know, he was an opportunity to work with Alan Kohler, some of the sort of the big stalwarts in financial journalism. And... You know, I just kind of put my application in as a punt, really. I really didn't have a lot of uh, pressure on me as such, you know, so put the application in, got a call back, you know, did a little written test and got the opportunity uh, to, to get into online media. Uh, it was, you know, again, business, and uh, that was Business Spectator, yep. which was like, you know, the first real financial, online financial news service in yep. Australia and I, I think this is where you know my life in the kitchen really helped me with life in online media because you know both are quite uh, you know they're process driven jobs you have to be disciplined there's a there's a deadline and an outcome at the end of it which is what uh, you know or your 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 quality is judged on yeah, yeah and that's not that dissimilar to working in a in a in a kitchen in a in a top end kitchen where you have to be disciplined you have to have a lot of um quality control drive and there's a certain quality yeah. and you have to understand process but there's also a creative element in that and yeah, as right. long as you're working with the right people and you get the right guidance uh you can excel in it and this was very similar in that sense
0: well it's interesting i mean you talk about uh, creative people you're now at a very business centric newspaper the australian and it's a white collar some would even say right-wing newspaper um is the environment you find yourself in as conservative as you might expect?
1: Well, look, the Australian certainly is and has always been a voice for conservatives in Australia. And, 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 and it still plays a very important role in that. Uh, I think the Australian still provides and develops a lot of very high quality content in Absolutely. the market. Yeah, it you does. Know, and, and yes, it's leanings sometimes. You know, there's always that perpetual issue around its leanings around. Certain, certain ideas and certain issues. But look, actually, as a newsroom, it's an incredibly professional newsroom um, and especially the business section is run and I work with a lot of very high-caliber journalists and, and the overall environment is really driven
0: towards, you know, good outcomes and, and, and quality outcomes. Excellent. Right? And that's really, that's yeah. really, really good. Um, so when you're writing and, you know, you've got your own biases when you look at greater societal issues, no doubt. How do you keep that creativity but keep your biases out of your Well Well, reporting? I guess
1: I'm part of perhaps an older way of looking at journalists. So I guess I'm sort of out of sync with the more contemporary ideas around journalism, whereas, you know, I personally think that, you know, objectivity is still important in journalism. I think you can still maintain it there as a professional. Because, um, you know, the, I, I, find, I think there should be a very clear distinction between, you know, what is an opinion piece and a comment piece and what is a news piece. Yeah. Now, you know, now you can obviously write your news piece and, and, and develop it and sort of sort of build the layers in that story based on, you know, how you, what you want to be, you know, really to be at the front of the story. But writing opinions and writing news is very different thing yeah. and your personal biases really should not come into when you're writing news. and now this so is factual bias yeah, it should be on facts yeah. it should be based on background, it should yeah. be on context and you know uh, there's been obviously a real push not just in Australia but globally, this new wave of journalism where it's heavily opinionated yeah whereas this idea that you can never really be objective you have to pick a side <laughs> there's also this idea of you know journalists sort of pontificating on issues as if you know they are experts in their field. And I think that's personally very, very damaging. Yeah. Very wrong. Because yeah. my job as a journalist is not to pontificate on 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 every single, you know, hot button topic that's there. And it's certainly not to give hot takes on every single cultural issue or, or technology issue. Yep. It's about speaking to experts. Yep. It's posing questions to them. And most of all, my job at The Australian is to represent the ideas and the anxieties and the questions or the curiosity of our readers. Now, now, just because I know, for example, what 5G is, I should not expect my readers to, expect to know exactly all the ins and outs of yep. it. So it's my job to speak to experts as topics and news pops up, and really, sort of be a mediator, be a translator of sorts, right, to distill complex information yep. and give that to our readers. That's, I think, is the core job of a journalist.
0: Against that, we've seen an incredible change in um, media and journalism, and you've got you guys fighting against the trend to entertain, give opinions, um, you know, talking heads. I mean, this is a very big change and it's diluted the quality of journalism, I believe, around the world. How do you keep that journalistic integrity when, you know, there's so much more uh, clickbait and fake news and, you know, the quality has been lost in the, in the sort of grab to get eyeballs? I mean. Well, I mean, look, in the sense that is still the existentialist
1: challenge that almost everyone in the media faces Uh, because, you know, uh, the digital disruption, you know, the way to mitigate digital disruption for most media organizations was to really focus on this dynamic of of clicks, right? This idea that we can, you know, create uh, customer interaction in a way where, you know, and where the metrics now became your clicks or your likes or whatever the metric you use. The idea was we have X amount of customer uh, interaction And now we can, how do we monetize that interaction? So, you know, there was that early phase of having banner ads, this idea that somehow banner ads could make up for what the physical um, papers used to do. And and, I mean, essentially, the disruption in the media industry was your traditional newspapers were pretty much the only game in town when it came to any sort of, you know, whether at a city level, whether at at a national level or at a regional level, to really become the one single point through which you could sell things, whether it was cars or homes or jobs. And so classified ads. Yeah. So the classified element of the paper and the role that they played allowed these papers to have enormous amount of wealth. Now that wealth was then sort of diverted into the generation of content. And because money was not an object, uh, you... Journalists worked under very different directives. You had long, you know, you had a lot of time to invest in your stories. Yeah. You could take months writing a story. Yeah. Money was not an object. You yeah. could jump on a plane anytime you needed to go chase a lead. Uh, once that the classified business got disrupted by the web, yeah. suddenly that money is just not there. Yeah. And not only is it not that the money had gone away, it was never coming back. So what we've seen is this structural change because suddenly newsrooms simply couldn't afford the standard traditional business model of news gathering and news uh, content uh, generation.
0: So some have gone down the path of having to turn it
1: into entertainment. Well, so the first response to that was, well, how do we cater for it? Well, well let's, let's turn it into entertainment. Let's turn it into, let's hyper-commoditize it on the web. But why it didn't work was A, what you earned from a banner ad was a fraction of what you earned from when ads were placed in papers. Yep. And the other was by creating a model where all of the news was free on the internet, you essentially we completely diluted the product. It became a hyper commoditized product. And it created a consumer met, you know, a consumer behavior where people just said, why would I pay for something that I can get You're for free? free right? yeah. So, you know, the reason we talk about fake news as a problem now is because, you know, in the, uh, you know, the mid 2000s, that's what we created. We created an environment where people had free access to all kinds of information. Yeah. And there were no filters, there were no quality controls. And, and I mean, that's what you expect. And that's, and that's what we're paying for now. So, what we've seen now, though, is we're seeing the, the, the pendulum shifting in. So paywalls have come in, yeah, and people will only pay for content
0: that's valuable. So, so what I love about the Australian—it still reminds me of old-fashioned journalism. Like you said, that's what it is. It may seem a little drier, a little less fluffy, and maybe even more bombastic, but it still seems to have this factual integrity behind it. Um, And people pay for that content. Is that is that what's happening now? There's a propensity to pay for good quality reporting i think you know there's definitely you
1: know the people will pay for uh quality journalism there's no doubt about that um and i mean you know people who read the Australian certainly read it because it confirms a lot of the way you know their world view and 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 yeah sometimes that may not be running again you know the most popular view, but it's certainly you know, I think I think what you're seeing is you're seeing that across the board. What we're now seeing is uh, media companies starting to understand that is that that people will pay for a certain type of content, of certain quality of content, and 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 they will pay to in some ways get their biases confirmed by that. Now yep. that's not necessarily a healthy thing. But it certainly creates a framework through which news media and news organizations can again become fiscally healthy enough to start, you know, looking at the next phase of what the media will be. Because remember, a lot of what we talk about now with news media is still looking at a contemporary audience, which in some ways is you would call a legacy audience. Yeah. The next generation of users, the next generation of consumers, are going to have very different view of what they believe to be valuable and what's not.
0: Valuable. So, so how long can you remain a broadsheet in a in a tabloid world in an open ecosystem? Well, I mean,
1: running the broadsheet as as it stands is very difficult, but the Australian manages to do that, obviously because of the good graces of our owners who believe to see that there is a value in it, but also because you know it's a national newspaper and and it's one of the few newspapers in this country that still consistently sets the agenda right and which is a very rare thing to do in a world that's dominated by digital media channels and social media channels yep. and i think that's the one benefit that the australian still possesses how long that can be maintained is a is a very good question i don't really have an answer to that but clearly it is a very difficult position to maintain
0: let's look at your particular area of focus you're looking at the The business side and technology side uh, from an industry a corporate perspective um you've got social economic uh, considerations some really important drivers of the australian economy are we in good shape well i think australian
1: economy is is clearly facing some challenges right now clearly i mean you can look at the rba and the way the rba's messaging is coming out from what i can tell From my perspective and what I'm seeing is uh, we are at an inflection point of Australia's, you know, the traditional drivers of Australian economy coming under increased and continued pressure. Now, not just from a way that, you know, pure consumer uh, behavior and what consumer expectations are starting to change. You know, we see our banks under incredible pressure when it comes to. Uh, delivering the right kind of outcomes and services to customers. Behavioral
0: driven. So, yeah, a lot of it,
1: you know, so I think the way we've been doing business in Australia has to change. There's an understanding that it needs to change and it is slowly happening. The core issue here is, though, is productivity. I mean, Australia is a very high cost. um, You know, the cost of doing business in Australia is very high. And out of that, that's compounded by some of the other structural changes that are happening in our, you know, whether it's in the energy sector with, you know, this transition to renewables, which will clearly have an impact on prices. Um, so just, so this transition is, is quite important and it's having, it's putting an impact on Australian businesses. And, and uh, what that does is it, we have to focus on productivity, you know, and, and Australia is, is, is really susceptible to these changes in the global market. Because-
0: what, about, what about, for example, then in the global sense, China and uh, the emergence of them on the Australian landscape and even? At a technological level, the, uh, the Huawei challenge. I mean, these, these are massive challenges for the Australian uh, economy and government.
1: Well, the Huawei challenge, I think, illustrates some of the broader issues around the rise of the growth of China. So for Australia, it's great when, you know, we love China as a consumer of our products. That's worked out really well for our economy. And uh, the economy over the last two decades has also really, at a consumer level, really benefited from the influx of cheaply made Chinese goods. Now, I think we are in a position where we are starting to perhaps rethink some of these ideas, right, as to why is it that, you know, that Chinese technology now, Chinese equipment is better than, say, the rest of the world? And why is it that our telcos, for example, heavily, you know, are heavily geared towards using cheaper
0: Huawei equipment? To, to balance their books. Maybe, right? maybe there's the answer. It is cheaper equipment. So they, they're plump for that. Yeah, well, it's cheaper, but it's also higher.
1: You know, but it's the fact that it's not just cheap and nasty. And that's what the Chinese story was for a very long time. It's actually cheap, but also very high quality.
0: quality. Yeah. It's
1: actually you know, not just cost competitive. It's actually delivering better outcomes. Yeah. So now that raises that challenge, right? You know, how do you balance national security with the broader economic challenge? You know, how does a society and a broader industry and many different vehicles that has become so used to using Chinese equipment or being used to a Chinese market to really balance, you know, to keep their books going, how does that make, how, you know, how do they tackle a situation where, you know, perhaps our relationship with China is changing?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of things changing, you know, macro and micro. I mean, you talk about productivity. What other important trends uh, do you see impacting and emerging uh, for the Australian economy and for business?
1: Well, look, I think this focus that we've, you know, I mean, digital transformation is something that's a very real thing for Australian businesses now. Uh, And most of all, I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is that digital transformation and digital service delivery is now more and more becoming a big thing from the public sector perspective. Uh, And that creates a lot of... uh, well, interesting challenges. And, yeah. you know, the prime minister very soon is going to uh, release some of the, you know, the, the, I guess, the findings of the big review into the public sector yes. by David Tody, That was yeah. run by former Telstra boss David Toddy, And and some of what we're hearing from the government already yes. hints at, at how important digital service delivery and digital and technology becomes from a public sector perspective. Now we want to, and these are all very worthy goals of trying to digitize Centrelink, digitize payments, yep. digitize, you know, a lot of the way the government provides services to its citizens, but it's a difficult journey. There'll be issues around privacy. There'll be poor implementation. Some of this (laughs) stuff will go over budget. There'll be all of the stuff will go over budget. Well, pretty much stuff that we've kind of seen in the physical world as well. So, when we see when we're building big infrastructure. So, in some ways, digital transformations are not immune to some of these deficiencies, right? And we're going to see some of that. The only thing is the impact. Or the potential impact, adverse impact, can be much more magnified. So you know the robo debt's a good example of that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean,
0: well, this is this is where technology, you know, it has all this uh, uh, this power, like artificial intelligence and big data. But when it goes wrong, um, then you get uh, horrible outcomes. And any system that's implemented is only good as the people that put it together and when you're dealing with complex transformation and massive uh, government organisations, you're always going to get things wrong. You've just got to mitigate as much harm as possible. But I don't think you're ever going to get a perfect implementation. I've never seen a big software project run under budget and without
1: problems. That's right. And you know, what happens is whenever, when, you know, generally when an IT or a core technology implementation doesn't work, um, until very recently, it was part of doing business, right? Because it wasn't customer-facing. It might have kept, it might have had an impact on other functions, but your customers didn't really feel it. Today's world is very different. You, if you have a botched IT implementation in your, core ba- in your core payment system, your customer can't pay for that coffee using their card. Or Apple Pay, yeah, right? And that's a big problem. It will stop the economy. Yeah, well, it has an economic impact, yeah. but more, often, more than that, as a business, you are now directly accountable to this customer who you said, well, you can make payments using your card. Just yeah. use Tap and Go. See, in the past, if your banking system, for example, had a botched core IT issue, they would have said, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, the automatic tellers aren't working, but come into our branch and we'll take care of you. Yes. Right? If you went to a shop, and you couldn't, they would take cash. Or they would say, oh, you know what? We've got these old fashioned credit card machines. We use those, right? The the old bank card sliders. The sliders, right? Right. But what's happened now is we've told the consumers that, well, all these things were really inefficient ways of doing banking. We're gonna give you ways through which where all you need to think about is tap and go. Yeah. Take out your card, or in some cases now, your phone, tap it, and it's done. Yeah. That's fantastic. And, you know, this whole phase of the early phase of, you know, digital technology has all been about this incredible nirvana that's being created. Yeah. All the friction is taken out. Everything yeah. to fix customer, consumer experience is paramount. That's brilliant. But now we've reached a point that we've created such a dependency. Yeah that now a botched IT system means you've got tens of thousands of your customers unable to make payments well it's not
0: just not just a botched IT system a hacked IT system or a is, hacked IT, I mean yeah. uh, it reminds me of black mirror i don't know if you ever watched but you think about uh, stopping all the financial transactions in the, in australia happening you can't even go down if there's an emergency to buy a can of baked beans because there's no way to take money. I mean, well, well, look, there's, there's anarchy. Yeah, but
1: look, you know, I think people talk about hacks and, and, and hacking being a, a, a fear. And, and true, it's true when you're digital architecture, when everything is reliant on a digital architecture, hacking is a core um, risk that you have to assess and you have to be prepared for. But quite often, you know, it's not even a hack. It's very simple things. I mean, you might remember quite recently there was a big payments outage where uh, people, uh, I think CBA customers, Combank customers, yep. couldn't pay for uh, couldn't pay for transactions. Yep. Now that wasn't a hack. That was some subcontractor making a mistake and hacking through a Telstra cable in North Sydney. Now that Telstra cable was necessary for running the backbone, the backbone, yeah. the interoperability system which banks use to process payments. Yeah. Now, Telstra is the only vendor which provides that uh, capability to the banks. Yeah. Because of Telstra's legacy and the legacy of how we do business in Australia, there was never any thought put into having some kind of a backup. Backup meaning that, hey, what if we had a fail-safe where if Telstra runs, uh, if the Telstra network goes down, we could jump onto another carrier, yeah. maybe an Optus or yeah. a Vodafone. The point is... I'm staggered they didn't have that kind of redundancy in place. Staggered. They didn't think about it. So what happens then is somebody makes an error, cuts off the cable, banks go down. Tells, what's Telstra going to do? They say, well, we've got SLA in place. are going to go and fix it.
0: We've got four hours to fix it. Yeah,
1: we'll fix it. <laughs> and until then... It is what it is. You're going to have to deal with it. I mean,
0: this is is extraordinary stuff. So this
1: is where you got to think about now, what are we doing enough as a society to think about resiliency? Are we thinking enough with regards to that? You know, it's great to have digital services, but are we becoming too reliant, you know, on this idea? I mean, people, we take, for example, internet for granted in Australia, and we somehow feel that it's the, you know, it is the responsibility of the providers to make sure there's 100% uptime. It's a human right to have uptime. Which is, which is you know, fair enough. I understand that. And, you know, the, the businesses use that as a marketing tool, but it's impossible to have 100% uptime. Yeah. At any given point, there are outages happening across all of the major networks, yeah. which are being immediately being fixed yeah. or are being mitigated as we speak. But there's a bigger one, right? Any damage to the subsea cables that, you know, that connect and move the volumes of traffic from Australia into Singapore, into Asia, into the rest of the world,
0: would be catastrophic. Well, we've seen it before, I think, with pipe networks, uh, cable going dark Yeah, we've seen it in
1: Tasmania a number of times, right, when the bass cable goes offline.
0: How critical things can be. So
1: we have to understand that while the digital world is quite pervasive and it is almost a constant companion, it is still a very fragile thing. Yeah. And, And I don't think we've reached a point where... We're taking resiliency, redundancy to a point where we know, you know, I mean, everyone has a plan. We
0: we, we don't know how how well they'll work. What what did Mike Tyson say? Everyone's got a plan until they get punched (laughs) in the mouth. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Okay. So, I mean, you give a fascinating insight into technology. Is this why you were drawn to technology? Well I mean uh, my training I guess as a journalist was really more
1: on on business like in the business realm and uh what was interesting was I got the chance to get an introduction to technology much later I think that would have been around I think 2010 2011 I think time or you know somewhere around that time and, and I think there was a recognition inside the business spectator business at the time, that uh, technology was starting to become much more important to to businesses, you know, as, 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 a, as a part of the spend, as a part of business modeling, that was starting to come. So, you know, I think I got into it at that time when we were still talking about cloud adoption, you know, how important it was yeah. to move to the cloud, yeah. that on-premise was no longer valid. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but now, I mean, in, in hindsight, it also looks like uh, a, a millennia ago, because I mean, which business doesn't understand public cloud or cloud computing now, right? right.
0: And look at the raws of IWS.
1: Yeah, just, exactly, right? Uh, I think the one good piece of advice that I got from uh, one of our senior editors, and I still work with with him now, I mean, he runs our wealth section. Uh, he, he He made a very good point to me he said that oh you know you could chase other things in business well i think he made two points he said look if you can cut it in business journalism you can cut it in any kind of journalism which i think is very true and the other was technology was going to become the thing yeah right forget about the dot-com this is going to be so much bigger than dot-com and i kind of took his words to uh seriously you know i thought yeah maybe there is something in what he's saying i'm sorry but this is before this is just before the iphone is about to well, launch I think
0: right so you gets the backdrop of like uh the big vc in america andreson horowitz saying techno software is eating the world you've got uh, jack welsh the the great ceo of uh um uh, ge saying every company is a software company and if you're not you won't be a company and these sorts of things i mean there's The pervasiveness of technology in business is uh, so intertwined now. It's, uh, you know, it leads to these uh, uh, dependencies for society. Yeah, Yeah. and
1: I think that's where I kind of, you know, was very fortunate to get into technology at the time. And, 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 And again, it's one of those things where, you know, technology has always, you know, technology journalism has always been around in Australia. But during the dot com era, you know, the Australian and all the major papers had massive technology sections. Yep. You know, big, full of ads for hardware vendors. Yep. You know, uh, so so there's that, right? But what I've seen, and and I guess this was the opportunity which kind of got me to the odds as well. After Business Spectator was bought by News Limited, was that internally there was a a, a recognition and a realization that you know this whether it's startups whether it's public cloud whether it's you know your your gadgets this is not going away yeah and we as a mainstream newspaper now need to develop the capability of writers who understand the traditional world the mechanics of business who know how to read a profit and ins- you know a PL, yeah who understand the, met- the the metrics of what the global economy but are now able to see it through that lens of technology yeah. and, and and like i said i think a core one of the core jobs that we do at the oz and it's the same with our peers at the at the australian financial review and and in the other nine papers mainstream papers is that we are now distilling complex technological ideas complex digital ideas and the impact of that on our society to the everyday lay readers. Yeah. And it's very hard to do that. Yeah. If you are well, you know, really steeped in that world of you know your IT departments. Because there's just too much assumed knowledge. Yes. So in a way, I kind of was very lucky to get into a technology at a point where it was now starting to become ultra pervasive. Now it impacted everybody, not just your IT department. And now suddenly there was an appetite for people who wanted to understand, well, what does this mean?
0: And the flip side of getting into technology, I mean, it sounds like (laughs) the Australians is a a very uh, sophisticated organisation with a good outlook on uh, trends. But internally, you must have metrics which help you understand what people are reading, what they like. Does that drive the agenda at all? or
1: I, I, I look, for any newspaper, that is clearly uh, something that has to be uh, at the you know front and center, right? What's driving the agenda? What are people reading? And there's definitely that's always going to be an element of that. But the question is what we can't forget is that, and, and this is a danger, and, and hopefully paywalls provide a, pro- a level of protection from that. Clearly, you want to optimize. Uh, again, user interaction, you want people to subscribe, which is great. So you have to understand what the zeitgeist is. But by the same token, you want to you wanna be in a position where there's enough financial stability and there's enough editorial, um, I guess, uh, prescience to say that, you know, sometimes a story is valuable not because of the clicks or the subset gets, because it's a really good story. Yeah or because it addresses a fundamental question or a fundamental anxiety. Yes. Finding that balance is is
0: difficult. And that leads me actually perfectly onto my uh, next question. I mean, presumably there are stories that uh, hit your desk from businesses and people looking at The Australian as almost a a free publicity medium. I mean, how does a story like that, something that hits your desk, uh, that may not be within the, the general interest or what your agenda currently is how does that catch your attention
1: well look we've got a fairly well thought out sort of uh i guess you would say almost a template of sorts on how we try to invest the time that we can on the technology stories and clearly hard news is far more important uh than uh you know non umpteenth case study or some commissioned research right i mean there's value in everything but the point is we have to see what's the most valuable yeah because you know we have a, a very finite amount of time to invest and and we need to make sure that uh, we invest it in the right things yeah. so so news is always good right so whether it's capital raising whether it's a new business with an interesting idea that has had a big significant client win or, you know, sometimes new new businesses uh, picking up money from, you know, the old business, you know, or from the, the wealthy, you know. So that's really always good. Uh, we always tend to leave open a couple of slots for features, for yep. which you would classify. They don't necessarily need to have a have a news element to them. But there's, we're certainly... Interest, show-
0: interest level? Or- yeah, we're
1: showcasing a certain talent about the work that they're doing and yep. interesting work that they're doing. Or people who have interesting things to say, because there's nothing worse than people speaking, and, and you know we get enough of that from Canberra anyway, <laughs> of speaking in prepared talking points. Yes. right? and what you need three is,
0: word slogans. Yeah.
1: So what you need in technology, and what if, what you sometimes need from businesses and new business owners, particularly, is to be brave and to to really make a and you know and that's the one thing again. If there is an entrepreneur out there or if there's a new business owner out there who really wants to make a point that'll be heard in Canberra, that will be picked up by other outlets the next day, the Australian is still by and far of the most powerful and potent publications. And what,
0: are, and what do they need to do to, to, to make that point? How do they, well, get, they, how do they to, get the Australian's
1: attention? Well, I mean, they need to obviously come to us and get in touch with us and, and tell us what it is that they want to say. And then, you know, I mean, the whole point of us as journalists is to, to sit and develop those ideas yep. and see what's doable. I mean, clearly, we you know we are we we subject all of these ideas to the necessary due diligence. You know, around the legal ramifications, around you know whether it's uh, you know pure scuttlebutt or whether it's actually you know there is some 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 validity, some yep, mirror, you know? some body to what's being said. Yep. Um, but I mean, generally, yeah, that's what gets you in the papers, right? Just just saying that, oh, we've done a research which says that 42% of businesses don't know how to use AI. Well, yeah, that's really not, that's great, <laughs> but that's not really going to get you in the papers. It's probably better it? for Twitter or something like that. Or even that. I mean, it's, it's the sort of stuff that's great for trade publications, Yeah, right? yeah. So that's the thing. And I mean, you know, we're trying to do the best we can. We're not always, I, I mean, I don't always do the best job, but, uh, you, know, it's, you know. Well,
0: I know, I know, with the, the changes in the media, you're obviously having to do a lot more with a lot less anyway. So you're, you're completely, uh, I'd imagine, flat out. Um, so with that change in media, you talked earlier about you know classified advertising, the massive advertising revenues that used to get generated. Um, what about digital or traditional advertising in newspapers? Can it be successful or do you think it's a dying... A dying art oh
1: I think there is still place for traditional advertisement, but I think more lo- in the long term, I do start to wonder whether you know what the upside is you know uh, I reckon there probably uh, I think the the traditional print advertising model is going to evolve. We're probably going to see more. You know, lift outs and, and interactivity. And do, inter, yeah, sort of things like that, special reports and stuff like that, which will give a different way, I think, for advertisers to connect with the public.
0: Yeah. I, think. And that, I mean, that again leads me onto social media, this change in the way people digest information, their attention spans. Is social media supporting your business or is it uh, really competing with it? Oh, uh, well, I mean, you know, traditional players certainly, I mean, the role that Google and
1: Facebook play, I mean, you really for Google, it's, you know, how they surface your stores. Uh, for Facebook as well, it's how much, uh, you know, how they can propel you. There's no doubt that, you know, the likes of Google and, 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 um, and Facebook, I mean, Twitter to a very small extent, do magnify the impact of your story. store. So you, can't, so you have to take that on board. Uh, but I think there's a fine line when you know it's a very different proposition when you start to write stories purely geared for those platforms. Right? I think that's a there's, a there's a I think there's a difference there. It's quite an important difference there. You know, you may you write a great story or you write an interesting story and you put that out onto Twitter and, and it magnifies your reach, that's great but you write a story simply because, oh, I want to get X number of clicks or I want a Y number of likes. That's when things get very different and right? very difficult. So social media in that sense is important. I think the one thing that irks me about social media is that we've increasingly started to use it as a barometer for sentiment and replaced it, uh, the traditional thing of going out and seeking people and talking to them and instead just rely on social media as a
0: way, as a barometer. Well, it's a right? popularity contest. Yeah, and what that does
1: is I don't think that necessarily always gives you the, the, the kind of nuance you're looking for,
0: you know. And now you you talk about uh, those platforms magnifying your story. You also talk about uh, your ability to set the agenda for Canberra. I mean, that is a that is a huge responsibility. Um, do you ever have to pull yourself up because your words can you? Tremendous influence. Do you have to to go? Whoa, whoa! What are the what are the ramifications of what I'm saying here?
1: Uh, Look, I think in the because you know I'm part of the business desk. I'm perhaps a little less, uh, you know. Unless uh, uh, um, under that
0: sort of scrutiny. Well, you know, are like, you if you write a story that has a direct impact on shareholders' sentiment? I mean that uh, that can have huge ramifications. <laughs> yeah, that's true, to, but I mean I
1: guess that's why we do have, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you know, I guess that's the difference. I mean, I'm not a blogger, so that's good, right? So <laughs> the good thing is that we are working within the, the the framework of traditional media, which means you know there are checks and balances and there. There's an editor who, you know, the business editor who I would work with. So clearly we take that, that responsibility is just there, right? And that's the reason why, you know, that's the part of becoming, I guess that's what separates you from being a journalist to, to an informed citizen or a concerned citizen who writes on a blog, right? Yeah. Because on a blog, you don't have any of those responsibilities yeah. to check for veracity. A blog is about your own personal opinion. Whereas you know, in a newspaper, you still are bound by those certain responsibilities, right? yep. whether they are spoken or unspoken. There is
0: a responsibility: get the facts right, yeah. report honestly, keep the biases on the shelf.
1: Well, at least I mean, I'll never say that you will never not have a bias,
0: but the point
1: is that's the challenge of being a professional, right? Is to is to manage those biases because if you couldn't, then what's the difference between you? Or an, an an everyday blogger. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to minimize or, or diminish the work bloggers do or what they're doing, but there is a clear distinction and, and I well, know one
0: said it one's got their own agenda they want to
1: yeah, put forward, yeah,
0: propound their own agenda, and you're trying need, to be dispassionate. Yeah, and they need to be seen as two separate but equally valuable things. Um I've got a, a, a final question for entrepreneurs or business people looking, you know, in your mind, what's the secret of good content? Is there a formula? Is there a secret sauce? You, you've alluded to, you know, it's got to be, uh, you know, obviously interesting. It can't just be vanilla.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, if, if it's if from a perspective of, you know, getting proper media coverage or getting traction in the media, it, I, I guess those are the sort of the three rules that come in. Clearly growth in business and sort of backing it up with some uh, uh, clear numbers, really good. Uh, any kind of equity raising event or getting a backing of a strong investor or a venture capitalist, great. Uh, and the third one is obviously when a business or a business leader feels suitably motivated yep. to come out and make a very strong statement. Yep. You know, that could be about, you know, we don't like the government's encryption bill. We don't like, you know, particular, you know, we we want something around you know workplace management. I think a strong one for many businesses, I would imagine, would be payroll, right? Yep. Payroll tax. Yeah what value does that bring? Is that become a, is that, has that become a hurdle to the growth of new businesses? That is, a, that is a good question. Right? So that sort of stuff that really works. And I think for new businesses in Australia, what is really important is, and, and this is the mantra, and I know it's oft repeated, and it is consistent across every single company that is successful, whether it's Atlassian, whether it's WiseTech Global, whether it's Canva, and many others, uh, is you got to think about the customer. Consumer experience has to be at the heart of what you do. Your customers have to remain, have to get such an experience where they feel that whatever you're doing is in their best interest. Yeah. Whatever they want, you're delivering it to them. Yeah. You can do that. It's, then I think in many ways you will be resilient. Yeah. And that means you know the product has to be paramount.
0: Create value for customers. And, and- creating value. So, yeah. you
1: know, all this marketing shtick and stuff is great, but if you can't back it up with the value you're providing, it's only it's going to be a very short-lived sugar hand. Yeah. yeah. And you get found out very, very quickly in today's world. You do. You know? And that's the challenge. In the past, you could have coasted, you know, because of just the structural uh, inequity or the structures that were in your favor, right? Because, you know, clearly... Traditional businesses often did not put customers at the front and centre, right? Consumers had to often pay the price for their own ignorance or sometimes they would pay the price because they didn't know any better because you've created the market forces in that way. That's way harder to do. Well, everyone's got
0: immediate information. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So you you see an incredible amount of information. What are the, uh, as you see them, the trends and opportunities uh, in business and for business?
1: Well, I mean, look, clearly the, the benefits of uh, you know, cloud adoption are clearly there, right? And, and I think we're now entering a phase where businesses now have a real opportunity to start leveraging how do we create the best kind of product outcomes for using the capabilities that we have, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, for example, you know, uh, there are a lot of new businesses. I mean, clearly when it comes to software-driven businesses, technology business, the the, the software as a service platform, that platform model is is absolutely paramount. And then the Mm -hmm. idea is you have a core platform that provides a very, very essential service. And then after that, can you add ancillaries to it, right? And we've seen that work, you know, Xero is a great example of that working. Yeah. Um, And you see it in businesses now as well. For example, you know, you've got a business like CarSense, right, what they do is, you know, they invest money in public cloud, they say, look, you know, there's something that, you know, a public cloud vendor can bring for us. That's great. So you put the money in, you do the implementation, pick up the services. It's really simple. I mean, but that's just the beginning. Right? Yeah. So what you need then is you need the business managers and business model development to happen where you say, well, what can we do with it? Mm-hmm. And say one of the things could be, you know, a business like car sales, I relies heavily on visual data, right, to which is really essential on that platform for for me as a user to kind of get, am I getting all the information yeah. I need when I click on a listing? Yeah. Well, using a public cloud service, you a business like car sales, which has huge amounts of you know visual information that's sent to them can now really say, you know what? Why don't we use the public cloud? Or well,
0: you you'd probably off-the-shelf uh, visualization products in yeah. the cloud. Yeah, I mean, this just is the, there's just
1: so many products yeah. available. It's, so it's, the idea is, look, the technology is there. A number of toolkits are now available as well. It's being able to see the value in that. And most of all, making that connection between the available technology yep. and not so much maybe, you know, the bottom line oh, does this help me save X amount of money? With the customer. Does this help me hit my KPI on, on something? No, that's not the case. Make that connection. Say, so if I do this, it makes the life of every single person who goes into my business better. Yep. My, my customers are happy means that is almost inevitably going to translate into more value yep. in your bottom line. Yep. It might not happen immediately, but clearly you started a process which gives your business more resilience, longevity, yeah. and, and you know, overall, all of this stuff really adds up. Yeah. Because, you know, eventually you're going to see, well, you know, we don't need to do as much marketing as we do because our customers are really good.
0: They're the advocates.
1: Customer advocacy is a big thing and stickability is a huge Yeah. Thing. So today, in today's environment, it's not just about getting new customers. It's Long about routine. making sure they stay on your platform because yeah. what's stopping them from going to another one? Yeah. Because... Technology has flattened everything out, right? With regards to the core capabilities that you have. You don't need to spend billions of dollars to make a platform that connects with that. And, and switching
0: costs are a lot lower yeah. as well.
1: Exactly, so that's the thing, right? So we've got commoditized technology, yeah. which is easier, getting easier to implement every day. Again, because of the cloud. You've got consumption models which are geared towards making it easier for you to use systems. You can use them when you need to. You can take them off when you don't want to. So, you know, you've got all of these new pedals and, and, and buttons you have at your disposal as a business, but the core thing is are you using it to deliver the best customer outcome or are you still using it to basically you save yourself
0: some money? Well, and that, I mean, that is a, a very good insight, I suppose. You've got to... Uh overlay that with the uh, the management team who have uh, long-term and short-term objectives led by shareholder value and delivering uh, shareholder gains. Yeah, and
1: look, I don't think that problem's ever going to go away, right? So if you're, you know, you've got shareholders, they have what they want, what they need, and, and that's there. But I think over time, the success of businesses that are willing to break the mold, who are willing to go out there and tell shareholders that, you know what, we could have had a had a net profit of X number of dollars for this financial year, but we're not, because we pumped it all into research. Sooner or later, that is going to, and it is already starting to pick up. You know, people are starting to see that because they see the power of an Amazon, They yeah. See the growth,
0: the power of Google, digital transformation. They can
1: see. So the digital transformation, which I think until recently was very much internally in sort of transforming the back, you know, the 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 the. the the backbone of a business, now we're seeing that Customer transition at not just at a consumer-facing level because consumers want their services that way and they're reliant on that, but also I think at a stakeholder level, at a shareholder level, yeah. people are starting to understand that, wow, this digital thing is much more than just buying a new kit and implementing a new kit or, or, or just having a nice little thing to say at, at the AGM. Yeah. This thing is, is real, yeah, and, real and it means certain compromises, you know? We're down to quick fire round. Okay. Who is your favorite comedian? I think Jerry Seinfeld. Tennis player? I don't like Actor? I'm Robert De Niro.
0: Fondest childhood memory?
1: I've got a lot of great memories as a kid, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I do remember, um, you know, the first time we had a TV in our house, it was very exciting. Black and white? You know, it was black and white, yeah. it was 1981. Mm. Um, Oh, it was a profound thing for me, and I used to just sit and actually just watch The Signal. <laughs> I was so enamoured by it, you know? So it's nice. I guess in some ways it's good to be in the media now, in some ways being attached to that.
0: You are, definitely. Um, most memorable smell?
1: Oh, <laughs> well, you know what? It is actually, when I, when I was little, we moved from India to Trinidad in the West Indies, you know. And, again, it's a profound shift in my life and it's really shaped the way... I've turned out to be in my my, my future, you know, but uh, I think I was yeah, I was about nine or eight or nine and and uh we've moved to Trinidad, it was just completely on the other side of the world from India, and uh, there used to be a KFC right opposite <laughs> our house and I still remember the day I landed and we, we we got home to our new home, and it was you know about eight thirty, nine o'clock in the night. and. Clearly, you know, we'd all landed from a plane, so we have to go find food. You know, there's not enough time to cook, and that smell coming from across the road was so powerful, so enticing.
0: They love their chicken in Trinidad, don't they? Oh, well, I mean,
1: that was the first time I ever had fast food. Yeah, you right. Know? I mean, I, I've at that time I'd never had a McDonald's. I'd never had any fast food, any, any But that smell of that chicken. I mean, I'm still, I still love uh You know, I've still got a weakness for for fried chicken, which, you know, I don't eat as much now at all.
0: I'd hate to think of you walking out of the kitchen from Attica across the road to get a a Zinger Burger. Oh,
1: well, you know, what happens is working in good kitchens means that if I ever feel the need to eat a Zinger Burger, I'll
0: just make it myself. (laughs) Um, Who is the person, dead or alive, you would most like to have lunch with?
1: Well, I've always been a bit of a history nut really, I'd love to have lunch with Julius Caesar. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's one. I guess there are a few other historical figures I'd love to meet.
0: No, be, that would be fascinating. Well, look, I know you're uh, very busy. So, Supratim Hedikari, thank you very much for your time, your insights and thank you for being on Discipline. No worries, my
1: pleasure.